New York City can be a photographer's paradise. There's no shortage of people or places to capture in a photo. From the Flatiron Building to Lady Liberty to strap hangers waiting on the platform for the A-Train. Photographer Herb Bard-David likes to focus in on the city's elderly. He works to capture senior life for a blog he calls Getting Old and Getting Out in New York City. I have a connection and a relationship, or brief as it may be, with these people. I'm George Bonarchy, and this is Cityscape. More from photographer Herb Bar-David coming up. But first, we hear about the work of photographer Larry Rassiopo. He's a repeat guest on WFUV's Cityscape. Over the years, Larry has taken photos of everything from religious imagery in New York City to old movie theaters and what they've become. His latest book features images he captured decades ago in his native Brooklyn. It's called Brooklyn Before, Photographs 1971 to 1983. Larry, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, it's my pleasure, George. It's great to be back here. So where in Brooklyn did you grow up? Well, that's an interesting question because it's one of the things we address in the book. Where I grew up, it was South Brooklyn and Red Hook. And now there's South Brooklyn. It's hardly ever used as the South Slope, Park Slope, Windsor Terrace, Greenwood Terrace, Cobble Hill. All those names I never heard growing up. It's all about real estate now, isn't it? It's naming, yeah. And we grew, I grew up on Prospect Avenue, 6th Avenue, and my family lived there until Robert Moses tore a house down to build the Prospect Expressway. Literally. Yeah. I mean, not him personally. Well, I know. Yeah. But the house came down. down. The house was torn down, and we moved. And my dad and several of my uncles are longshoremen. They work on the Brooklyn docks. So we moved to Sunset Park. I had to change schools and a block from our original house with my mother, mother three of her sisters. So we were always back in that neighborhood, but we actually, I grew up in Sunset Park. So how different is that area today from when you were growing up? Well, the original area is now super gentrified. It's now Park Slope, Greenwood Terrace, homes that um, my father's friends sold. They bought for 20000 lived there 20, 30 years, sold for 100000 It's what they made the biggest killing, or several million dollars now. When you moved out on your own, your parents were very upset by how much money you were paying in rent. How much money oh, was yeah. it? Oh, yeah. They were paying They were paying $55 or so a month for a rent-controlled apartment. And I moved into an apartment on a floor-through apartment on 15th Street, which is now the South Slope, between 6th and 7th. I was paying 125 and they were horrified. And it was kind of a distant family relative. They were doubly horrified that someone would charge me money. Yeah. And everyone thought it was the greatest deal. My friends later said, wow, you have a whole apartment, you know, floor through. So it's just also relative. But the low rent enabled me to pursue my career in quotation marks as a photographer. Yeah. So what inspired you to pick up a camera and how old were you when you first did that? It's, it's interesting. I, I had some friends in California. I, I, I left Fordham after my junior year in 1968. And I was living in California. And some of my friends were starting to fool around with black and white photography. And I borrowed a camera for a trip coming back to New York. And I was back in New York visiting over Christmas. And I walked around the city taking pictures. And I just loved the feel of it. People would talk to me, are you photographers? Like, really? I said, this is really interesting. And when I went back to California, I fooled around a little more. And then somehow it, it just became, in my mind, the thing I wanted to do. Either be a filmmaker or a cameraman. Or a filmmaker or rather still a photographer. And I bought a camera in San Jose. It was really funny. I went to a hawk shop, and I didn't know anything. And the guy behind the counter handed me two cameras, 
and one was heavier. And I thought, oh, this must be better because it's heavier. And what turned out to be a classic Nikon rangefinder, which Nikon made before. It was like a Leica, and he made it before they became famous for their big SLRs. And I started using that, and it was a sweet little camera. So this was 1971? 1970. I came back. I left California in 1970, and then I started thinking of what to do next. Now, you did go on to work professionally as a photographer. You worked for the city for right. the housing department, right. Right? right? But this started for you recreationally. Right, just just for fun, just I liked it. And one of the things I, I think about when I look at these photographs and talk to some of my friends from that time is if you grew up in an outer borough in Brooklyn, you were somewhat intimidated by the city. I don't really know why. There's no reason to be. But I took a course at the School of Visual Arts, and I just felt very uncomfortable. So I got the basic idea of what to do to make, this was black and white, 35-millimeter photography. And again, because rent was so cheap, I rented a whole storefront in Sunset Park for $35 a month. I put a sink in. I built a little wooden counter, and I, and I bought an enlarger for $75, three plastic trays, and I taught myself how to print. What inspired you to go back to look at these photographs and put them into a book for oh, Brooklyn before? Oh, it's interesting. I was working on a bigger project, which I call the Brooklyn Book of the Dead, which is about funerals and memorials in Brooklyn. And I noticed several people had started publishing books about Brooklyn in the 70s. There was a book called The Brooklynites. Uh, a friend of mine, Meryl Miser, a great photographer, did a book on Bushwick, a disco Bushwick in the 70s. And I thought, I have all these interesting photos. And Brooklyn is so in now. It's become like a brand that's famous. People name their kids Brooklyn. Let me put something together. And I just started looking at the negatives and thinking of what I had. And I bought a really good scanner. So I scanned all the negatives myself. My stepdaughter, Francesca Roche, is a designer. She did a book dummy with me. I had seen an article by Tom Robbins in the Village Voice about old bars in Brooklyn. I wrote to him and said, this might be, you might be interested in this. I sent him 60 photographs, and he wrote a little introduction, and we created a book dummy. And I shopped it around to a few places, and someone, a friend of mine who used to work for the uh, New York State Council on the Humanities sent it to someone at Cornell, and Cornell wrote me the next day we wanted to do the book. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was really, you know, hard work, luck, the usual combination. One thing that becomes quickly noticeable as you sift through this book is how common it was for kids, young kids, to be out on the streets in 1971, between 1971 and 1983. Oh, exactly. And that's what's one of the most noticeable differences. For example, Halloween is coming up. And I look at my early Halloween photographs, which was published years earlier, and you just had no costume, a little mascara, and maybe some face paint, and you went out, you got a dozen eggs, and you ran around. Or, and now it's like, you know, my, my grandsons go to parties, they go to like official places. And I'm not saying one is better, but they really are different. There's one photograph in the book in which a kid is playing a mugger for Halloween. That was really interesting. This was at um, the little local, I was always photographing Halloween, and I had an aunt of mine who was a liked photography, and she knew, she, she more than most people in my family got what I was doing, and she called me and said, the church is having a Halloween party in the church auditorium. So I went, and I just bought a new camera. I was trying to go up from 35 millimeter to 120 film, which is a you know, bigger negative for bigger prints, and I bought a little strobe unit. So I actually went one of the first times with a camera on a tripod and a strobe, and I went there, and these kids had amazing costumes, and you know, there's always the, the movie of the year, like where there's Power Rangers or, you know, Jaws. 
And then there's the classics, the saints, the devils, the angels. And these two kids came. I, had, I set up a little wooden background, and they came in to be photographed. And I said, what are you? And the guy said, I'm a mugger. I'm a victim. He throws his hands up. And the kid pulls out like a, play, a water pistol and says, I'm, I'm a mugger. And I thought that was amazing, but that was right about that time when the city was starting to change. This was 1980, so things were getting tougher. People were more aware. And I thought it was amazing that these kids picked up on it. There's another photograph in the book featuring a bunch of kids all with guns in their right. hands, plastic guns. Right. That was Christmas Day. Christmas One Day. Of the things you, got, you got a gun for Christmas, and kids ran around. They played played soldiers, you know. Very different from the, the problems, say, with real guns. And, like, the idea of a kid smuggling a gun into school or and all the terrible fatalities we have nationwide. This was just, boys are aggressive, I think. I mean, it's changing, but I, I think... One of my friends in Park Slope was, I would say, very PC. She didn't want her sons to have guns, and they made guns out of their socks. They would mm. hold their socks out by the heel and point the gun and kind of throw it. And their father made them swords out of wood, and one of them almost got blinded. So it really was like not a good alternative. This book also captures the diversity of Brooklyn yeah. during this era, 1971 right. to 1983. You know, when I was growing up, the the kind of the parish neighborhood was Irish. And Italian and Puerto Rican, a smattering of, of Polish descendants. We all knew each other. We got along. I think there was tension, but it wasn't like the killer, dangerous tension. You kind of knew who was who, who was where. And if you played ball, you played with everybody. Many of the subjects in this book, many of the subjects in these photographs are your family members, correct? Right. They were willing to uh, be subjected to my using the camera. <laughs> um, it was funny because it was... It was there's a very good photographer, a Guggenheim fellow named Greg Miller, teaches a class approaching strangers. It's hard to approach strangers, but the people you know, your family, your relatives kind of put up with you, and then um, kids. Kids are more open. I had a lot of pictures where I, kneel, I knelt down or like I'm six foot tall, so I get lower to be less threatening. And I saw the kids were doing the same things I did. There was like a natural affinity for me. So you were what, playing ball. in your early 20s, right? I was like 21, 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a big head of hair. <laughs> I had a beard at one point, and I uh, shaved the beard because it was off-putting to people. There were a lot of older Italians in my in my neighborhood, and I found the beard became a barrier. And I just when I said, just people are just looking at me in a funny way, and I um, kind of got rid of it because it was it was it was blocking things. So you have to, as a photographer, you have to be very aware of that. You very often, you know, if you're on a shoot, or you're hiring models. It's very different. If you're just approaching people. You have a few seconds to connect. They either like you or they don't. They trust you or they don't. How much different of a photographer are you compared to that 21, 22-year-old guy? Well, I think I'm better. I'm definitely slower. And I, I went on, you know, I found photography about printing. In the end, you make, you make prints. And I wanted to make bigger prints, so I started using bigger cameras. So I went from a 35-millimeter to a two and a quarter negative, to a four by five negative, to eventually shooting with an eight by 10 negative, which is hard to do, costly, time consuming. But if I saw something that was really beautiful, my idea was I wanted to make a really big print and I wanted it to be sharp. So I gradually over a period of like 50 years changed equipment, changed techniques, but I still shoot a lot with two and a quarter black and white. I think that's a, a beautiful image. What do you like to photograph most these days? Well, I have about 10 projects going as like bar graphs simultaneously. 
I'm photographing the waterfront. I have a project on scrappers. I think the scrap industry in New York City is amazing. It's like a multi-multi-million dollar industry of scrap and recycling where there are these big yards in the city. They're on the waterfront, Gowanus Canal, Newtown Creek, so they're still uh, alive with transports by barge. And then this person with a push cart can go down the street, pick up metal, and recycle it. There's sometimes you, you have, a, I call them the cowboys. You'll see a guy or two in a pickup truck. And they go around. They know when the sanitation arrives. They come down the block looking for stuff. They also haul stuff from jobs. When I was working as a carpenter, I noticed the plumbers keeping the copper, putting these little piles aside to sell later. So that that, that I find is a fascinating um, topic because it's large scale, you know, urban landscape, and also portraiture on the smallest level. What are you hoping people take away from this book? Uh, life is sweet. Life is short. Enjoy it while you can. And just some really good pictures. Some people see it as memory. Some people see it as good art. Some of the pictures are stronger than others. You know, some work like when my family sees it, it's mostly memory. Other artists see it. They like the composition, the light. They see the topic. What's your favorite photo in the book? Uh, when I think about it, it's not, that's not my favorite, but that I think of is a little mailbox that has my family name on it. We lived in a, we lived in a, a family. Uh, the owner was Italian. He was an Italian mason from from Italy, there were eight families. There were never less than seven Italian families. And on Sunday morning, you come in, there was an outer doorway. You open the door, you come in, and then you need a key to get the second door. And Sunday mornings, a smell of sauce would hit you. Mm. Everybody was making sauce. All different, but all like tomato sauce. That's fantastic. Yeah. Tell us about the photo on the cover of the book. Who are these oh, kids? Two, two kids. I was walking that 6th Avenue between, I think, 19th and 20th. And you can see if you go straight back, it takes you to the cemetery. These kids walking down the street, I saw them. I said hello, and the kid did a summer, you know, did that flip. The other kid had this plastic horn. We used to get at ball games. It makes that funny sound. And there was like this street life. I mean, there are, there are many great photographers in New York photographed the kids from, you know, Diane Arbus with that edge, Helen Levitt a little sweeter. It, kids, are, what you photographed, you're fabulous. Well, the book is Brooklyn Before, Photographs, 1971 to 1983. Larry, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you, George. Always a pleasure. You can find more on photographer Larry Rassiopo at LarryRassiopo.com. In a city like New York, it's easy to be invisible, to go undetected by those around us, to easily blend in with the hustle and bustle of the Big Apple. Photographer Herb Bar-David says that's especially true for the city's elderly population. And so he decided to take pictures of them and tell their stories on a blog called Getting Old and Getting Out in New York City. Herb joins me now in the studio. Herb, thanks so much for coming in. Glad to be here. So how long have you been taking photographs now? Well, I started taking photographs when actually when I was 10. And at the age of 12, I commandeered my parents' only bathroom and used it as a darkroom. So I've been involved in passionate about photography as a child and always right on through, although I am a social worker um, by profession. I've always pursued photography on a very serious level, taking a lot of classes at uh, School of Visual Arts, and more recently, for the past 10 years, I've been taking classes at the International Center of Photography. So what were you taking pictures of when you were 10 years old? Uh, family, uh, friends, uh, my environment. Uh, I, I still have some of those old pictures of my family that I printed, developed and printed. What is it about photography that draws you? Well, there's something about history. It, it tells a story 
I think I first really got interested, the Long Island Press, which no longer exists, used to run once a week article of then and now. And they would take an intersection in Manhattan that was photographed in the 1800s or the early 1900s and then take a present day picture. And I was always fascinated about that. It tells me about the culture and the environment. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Queens in Flushing. And now you live in Manhattan. I live in Manhattan. I was born in Manhattan, grew up in Queens, and live in Manhattan again. And your lens right now is focused in on Manhattan. On Manhattan. On the Upper West Side, specifically. I walk the streets, and I look for people who have canes, walkers, wheelchairs, or personal aids. And I know that everyone, not just the elderly, has a story. And I look at people, and I know I want to see their story. I want to know their story. So about two years ago, I started this project. I was taking a class at ICP on the long-term project, and my wife suggested, and she's a social worker who's been working with the elderly, and suggested that I go out and photograph the elderly who don't stay alone at home in their apartments. And at first, I was just photographing them. And as I would photograph, I began speaking with them, talking to them. I can't not. That's who I am and started hearing their history. So I started adding the text to the uh, images. Now, the project is called Getting Old and Getting Out in New York City, right? Correct, right. So what are they doing primarily when they get out? Are they just sitting on a park bench? Are they going to the doctor's office? Both. They're mostly getting out to be with people. I remember one woman who said to me, she lives alone, but when she comes out, she comes downstairs, she doesn't feel lonely. She feels like she's with people. And many of them sit on the park bench. And there's one particular park that I like, uh, Giuseppe Verdi Park on 72nd Street. And there are a lot of people who sit there, but there are people who are on their way to the drugstore, to the grocery store, to the doctor's office. Now, when you first started taking these photographs, did you ask permission or did you just snap photos of people sitting on a bench, for instance? I usually make some sort of contact with people, either visually. I'll look at them, hold my camera up to my eye, and if they put their hand up or they don't want it, I I won't take their photograph. I don't sneak pictures. I don't sneak snap. Um, I don't think that's the way to go. Um, And mostly you can see in my blog that I have a connection and a relationship, or brief as it may be, with these people. So I start talking to them. And many times my camera will be in my bag. I won't even have the camera out. And I'll just start talking to them. And then I'll say, do you mind if I take some pictures? I explain to them what I'm doing and why I'm doing this. And many of them are interested in it. One, One of the things, one of the reasons my wife wanted me to do this is in New York, and I guess other places as well, elderly are invisible. We look right through them. We look past them. We don't want to see what it's like to be old, to be infirmed. And no one really pays attention to them. So when I stop and I ask them about them and I'm interested in what they do and what they used to do, many of them take this as an opportunity to talk and don't want to stop talking because they don't have an opportunity to talk to people and talk about themselves or their grandchildren or what has happened to them. So what kinds of questions are you asking these individuals? I ask how old they are, um, even though many of the women don't want to tell me the last woman I just (laughs) met. She wouldn't tell me her age. She told me her husband's age. He was 90. Um, I'll ask them what they did for a living. Um, Do they live alone? What is it like for them? 
why do they get out, and is it important, and why is it important? I ask them what they like about living in Manhattan. What is it about living in Manhattan and getting old? Uh, what do they dislike about the city? And more often they'll tell me what they like about the city is it's convenient. They can walk to the store. They can get on a bus that's handicap accessible. It's an easy place to be elderly. Have you asked any of these people what they think of today's generation? Yes, I have. I remember one particular gentleman was very upset with the way in which the young men treat the young women. Uh, He said he would sit at McDonald's and have a cup of coffee, and he would see them being rude or touching them or pushing them. Um, The the elderly tend to be critical of the youth. I think that goes hand in hand often. Was that 101-year-old person the oldest person you've spoken to? Uh, She was the the oldest. I've met two other women who are 100, Um, and um, many people in their 90s. And their history is amazing. I've met three people who escaped the Nazis, one man who was interned in Manzanar, the Japanese internment camp during World War II. Uh, I met a gentleman. I said, what did you used to do? He said, I was a physician in Boston. He worked in in Brigham Brigham Women's Hospital. And he actually discovered hep C. Wow. Wow. And I went, he gave me his last name, and I went up and I Googled, and he was not lying. He was telling the truth. Um, So it's amazing, the history. I met one gentleman. uh, This was really fascinating. He was old and he was bent, and I asked him what he used to do. He said, well, I was in a rock band. You may have heard of us. And I said, which rock band? And he, he said, the Left Bank. And I know the Left Bank. They sang Walk Away Renee. And he straightened up took his cane and pretended it was a guitar and started to sing to me. <laughs> so it, it's so fascinating hearing these people's stories. Uh, that's what I'm interested in. Everyone has a story. And one of the questions I'll say is, what's your story? Tell me a story. And sometimes I'll say that directly and sometimes just by the questions I ask. That's what I'm looking for. Do you go out specifically to look for people to photograph, or does it happen serendipitously? Uh, no, I, I go out specifically. I pick up my camera. I go out. I'm in the mood. I'm in the mindset. I'm looking for people. Sometimes I'll sit on the bench. Sometimes I go out for an hour or two, and nothing happens. Uh, the other day, I went out, turned the corner just as I got out of my building, and boom, there was a really uh, older-looking, good-looking uh, man photographed him. He has a PhD in mathematics. He was 92 years old. He was on his way to visit his son, going to the garage to get his car to drive to New Jersey, to Teaneck, New Jersey. Uh, And then it was amazing. About a half hour later, I met another, I met a couple, and the woman had her master's degree in mathematics. Within an hour of each other, I met two people who who were math teachers. Do you see yourself as breaking a lot of the stereotypes that surround older people? Here you reference this gentleman, 93, who's going to drive his car. Right. I, th- I think so. Um, I-, I think for the most part, as I said, people look through the elderly. They dismiss them and they put them in a group. I know that other people that I've come in contact with, for instance, the class that I was taking at ICP, all the other 
people in the class now would come back each week and say, oh, I saw someone on a walker, I saw someone with a cane, and they said their awareness had been changed. And all of my friends, you know, we walk down the street, if we're just going out to a restaurant, they don't have my camera with me, and we see someone with a walker, they'll point to that person for me and say, well, that's someone you could photograph. I say, yes, I know, I know. Uh, so the people I know, their awareness has seemed to change. How would you say your work as a social worker benefits you in this project? I think enormously. Um, It's a combination of my two skills, photography and social work. I'm a therapist. I listen to people. I know how to speak with people and to listen to people. Um, And I know how to get someone to tell their story. I I have an old saying, if you want to hear someone tell you about their uncle, just tell them a story about your uncle. Very shortly, they'll tell you about their uncle. So I, I, I often tell people about me. I'll ask them how old they are, but I'll tell them how old I am. I'll tell them what I do. If they say something that was a similar experience that I had in my past, I'll relate that to them. So it's not just me taking information from them. And I don't write down things while I'm speaking with people. I think it interferes. I pay attention. It's my training. And I remember what's been said because I'm focused on what they're saying. So you're not writing it down and you're not recording it? Neither one. No, I don't write and I don't record. I go over in my mind what was said right after I leave them, and then I go upstairs, and then I'll write it down. But that could be hours later. Have you stayed in contact with anyone that you've photographed and talked with? Just one person. He enjoyed the conversation so much, and he was lonely. He wept a little bit, as he told me, when his wife passed away. He said, you know, we should meet for breakfast, and we did. Um, I called him up. He was surprised that I called him up, and we met for breakfast about a month later. We had breakfast. I waited for him to call back, but he did not return the call, so I I left it alone. Um, I've seen a number of people repeatedly as I walk around the same area, and one of the things I'll do is I have a printer at home, a a good quality printer, and I'll print out uh, photographs for them, and I'll carry them around, and if I see them again, I give them the photographs so they can have something. I've done that quite a bit. Aside from photographing older New Yorkers, you have also photographed bicyclists here in New York City, right? That's correct. I, that was another project that I took. I was taking a class at, I believe, a CCNY a Graduate School of uh, Journalism. Um, and the instructor, James Estrin, who runs the New York Times Lens blog, was, was uh, the instructor there. And for that class, I had done a project in, on bicycles, and that actually decorates my wall in my bedroom. And what were you looking to capture with that project? Uh, the motion, the feeling, what it's like to ride in Manhattan, the danger, and some of the oddity. You see the strangest things in Manhattan, people carrying 50-pound packs on their back or people riding around in funny-looking hats and costumes. So just the environment of Manhattan on a bicycle. You also have a great book out called Peace Now and Then. Oh, yes. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, in the 1960s, I was very involved in the anti-war movement. And whenever I went on a demonstration, of course, I brought my camera with me. And then when George Bush declared war uh, in Iraq, again, I was on the peace demonstrations, on the anti-war demonstrations, and brought my camera again. And I wanted to see what I had from the 60s. I had all my old negatives, many of which I hadn't even printed. I went back and scanned them in, and I looked at the photographs that were 40 years apart, and they were almost identical. 
the same thing 40 years later, the same problems, the same cry for peace. And so I put together this book with on one page would be the 40-year-old black and white picture from the anti-war demonstrations against the war in Vietnam. And then on the uh, opposite page, a very similar looking photograph from 2003 and 2004. So it sounds like it might be hard to distinguish them apart. You couldn't tell which was from which year. The only way you could distinguish is that the 60s pictures were black and white and the current pictures were color. Fascinating. That was the distinction. So what is after this project, or do you continue to focus on different projects? I see myself continuing this project for a long time. I enjoy it so much. Every time I meet someone, every time I get a new story, I'm so invigorated by it. I'm just It's a great feeling for me, and I want to keep doing this for a long time. I don't know how long, but I don't see myself stopping in the near future. And what's the blog location? Where can we find it? Blog.herbardavid.com. And do you hope to turn this into a book as well? I would like this to be a book and possibly an exhibit. I would love to show this again to the uh, Museum of the City of New York and would love to have an exhibit there. That would be terrific. What would you say is the story that has stuck with you most of all of the people that you've spoken to so far? I think the people who have escaped the concentration camp and escaped the concentration camp in uh, in California, that kind of life, this man running from Holland to Paris to Pau to to Lisbon to New York uh, as a seven-year-old. That's a very powerful story. So what's your advice to anyone who is living in this city who may encounter someone like you're encountering these individuals sitting on a park bench or hanging out at a coffee shop? Look, Look them in the eye and give them a smile. Herb, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. You can check out Herb Bar-David's work at HerbBarDavid.com. Have you taken any great photos of or in New York City that you'd like to share? We'd love to see them. Share them with us on Facebook or Twitter. You'll find us under WFUV's Cityscape. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Julia Seabode and Caroline Rotante. And thank you so much for listening.